Welcome to Failed Utopia, the podcast about utopian ideas and paradise lost. We look at utopian concepts of the past, present, and future, as well as utopian societies and communes, which promise the world to eager followers, but inevitably fail when it all starts to unravel. This is Anna, your new favorite podcast host. I am so excited to be here with you for this, the inaugural episode of Failed Utopia. So without any further drumroll, let's get into the good stuff. The Failed Utopian community that really has everything I think a story like this needs is Synanon. Synanon became one of the most infamous cults in America, but I have to admit, I didn't know about it until pretty recently. When I started reading about it, wow. It started as a drug rehab program, morphed into a utopian community, and finally went out in a blaze of violence, abuse, and fraud. Yeah, it's pretty much the definition of a failed utopia. That's why I'm making it the subject of my first episode. Stay with me here, and when we come back, we'll be delving into shaved heads, the game, dope fiends and squares, rattlesnakes in mailboxes, and so much more. Before we get started, a content warning. Some episodes of this podcast contain disturbing or upsetting topics. Use your discretion for yourself and those around you. This won't be appropriate for kids. If you feel you need support, please find help through a crisis line, mental health professional, or a friend or family member. I have resources including crisis hotline phone numbers listed in the show notes. Okay, I know I promised you guys rattlesnakes and dope fiends, and I know that's why you're here, and we'll get there. But I think the best way to understand this story is just to go chronologically. Lucky for you, the beginning of this story is almost as weird as the ending. So let's hop in our imagination machine and head back to 1963, California. I think for many of us, when we're imagining California in the 60s, that's just where it was at. Everyone wanted to go out to California. If I could afford the royalties, I'd totally play you California Dreamin' by the Mamas and the Papas right now. But I can't, and I won't torture you by singing it. So picture a grand building called Synanon House on the beach in Santa Monica, California. Drug addicts are being cured left and right. Everyone is getting rid of their hangups in spirited, no-holds-barred group therapy sessions, having breakthroughs and learning and growing as more fully self-actualized people. On the weekends, lively but sober parties with jazz bands and celebrity guests are a hot social scene. Other times you can take a dance class from Eartha Kitt or hear a lecture from Ray Bradbury. The governor of California, Jerry Brown Sr., even pays a visit. Synanon gets a mention in a Bob Dylan song. It's all because of a miraculous rehab program for alcoholics and drug addicts. Around this time, recreational drug use was taking off as a more mainstream part of American culture, 
While addiction wasn't new, it was starting to become a more public problem and less of a fringe issue as usage rose and public perception changed around the issue of drug abuse. For most of American history, there wasn't much help to be had for addicts. You'd probably get thrown in jail or maybe a hospital, but there weren't rehab programs. By the 1950s, Alcoholics Anonymous had been around for a while and was gaining popularity. One of AA's devoted adherents was recovering alcoholic Charles Diederich. He loved AA, but it bothered him that they didn't take other types of addicts. In the late 50s, he started holding his own meetings at his apartment and inviting not just other alcoholics, but also dope fiends, as he called them. These group sessions were part symposium led by Diederich and part spirited group therapy, leading Diederich to nickname them with the portmanteau Synanons. Eventually, his meetings outgrew his apartment, and he rented out a storefront, calling it the Tender Loving Care Club. That sounds really sweet to me, and if I was having a rough time, I think that would appeal to me. Actually, it does appeal to me. Maybe I should start a club called Tender Loving Care. It won't be a rehab, though. <laughs> Let me know if you want to join my club. Diedrich soon changed the name of his program to Synanon, and I think that was a good thing because he actually believed in tough love to get people sober, not tender loving care. His treatment was crude. He didn't believe in tapering or weaning off of a substance. Everyone in the program went cold turkey and suffered the consequences, no matter how brutal the withdrawal. He also personally created the therapies that Synanon used, apart from what he'd cannibalized from AA. Remember, Diederich didn't have any kind of qualification whatsoever, other than his own experience as an alcoholic. The most important therapy Synanon employed was called the game. This already sounds dystopian to me. The game consisted of group therapy sessions lasting from hours to days at a time, where the point was to aggressively confront other participants, even screaming at them or insulting them. The goal was to hash out problems and learn about yourself through the means of brutal honesty and criticism. But paradoxically, lying was also part of the game. The things participants said didn't have to be true. In the beginning, the program catered to and attracted mostly disenfranchised people who often went ignored elsewhere. Then, as now, this was a sorely needed service, especially for underserved populations. But it also set up Synanon's reputation as a charitable organization that it would ride on well past the time that it actually offered any beneficial services. As his little flock grew, Diedrich eventually bought a former hotel called Club Casa del Mar on the beach in Santa Monica. Parties were held on Saturday nights featuring jazz bands, which were always available thanks to the many jazz musicians frequenting Synanon to get clean. Synanon boasted of cure rates for its patients of 80 to 100 percent. Of course, those were Diedrich's reported numbers, and they were never verified by an outside source. Anecdotally, it sounds like very few people were ever actually rehabilitated. 
In the early 60s, Diedrich actually spent a few days in jail for operating a hospital and treating patients without a license. Nonetheless, Synanon started getting a lot of positive press. Diedrich was considered an innovator in the new and, I'll note, unregulated field of drug rehab. He was also good at talking to the media who found him quotable. He supposedly coined the phrase, Today is the first day of the rest of your life. And he came up with a lot of other catchy one-liners. He also continued reporting outrageously high cure rates, which, though unverified, were reported uncritically in the media. The public became enamored of Synanon, and celebrities like Ray Bradbury, Steve Allen, Jane Fonda, Natalie Wood, Leonard Nimoy, and countless others began visiting the Synanon house not for treatment, but to socialize and even give lectures and classes. In 1965, a Hollywood movie about Synanon was released, glamorizing the organization even further. At the very least, go online and check out the movie's poster and trailer, which is really something, and includes the best movie fight scene I've ever seen. There's a link in the show notes. Around 1970, Synanon made some big changes. In the earlier iteration of Synanon, after going cold turkey, enduring Diedrich's brand of tough love, and participating in the game, recovering addicts could expect to graduate after a year or two in residence at Synanon House, ready to re-enter the outside world. Now, recovery meant a lifelong commitment to Synanon. They also began accepting non-addicts who they referred to in the parlance of the day as squares. One benefit of these honorary members was that they paid money to join. They were sometimes called lifestylers, as they had outside jobs, didn't have to live at Synanon House, and gave most of their income to the group. The down-and-out junkies who'd made up Synanon's early patients hadn't made the organization much money, so the influx of new cash opened up a world of possibilities for Diedrich's ambitions. Synanon began buying land, thousands of acres of it, and opened two more facilities elsewhere in California, and even satellites around the country. The private cash also allowed Synanon to avoid applying for government grants, despite their eventual nonprofit status, because with that type of money would come oversight. It's unlikely any close scrutiny would bode well for Synanon. Soon, Synanon stopped considering itself a rehab altogether and transitioned into marketing itself as a new form of psychotherapy, which anyone could benefit from. The new Synanon was billed as a utopia of human progress, It even started a program for troubled teens and juvenile delinquents sent by parents or the court system to be straightened out. Once seen as a punishment or hazing ritual, shaved heads became the norm, and members now wore overalls, Diedrich's signature look. The organization also gained religious tax-exempt status from the government in the early 70s. It was now a full-blown religion, the Church of Synanon, and the idea of participants graduating or moving on was dead. In 
Fun fact time. Yes, that's my fun fact sound effect. In 1971, when George Lucas was making his film directorial debut, THX 1138, he needed a large number of actors with shaved heads and was having trouble finding them, especially women. Someone suggested he go up north and check out Sinanon, where their members' heads were already shaved. Lucas did just that, and the movie featured Sinanites as extras. If you haven't seen THX 1138, you might want to drop everything and go watch it. Yeah, go watch it and come right back. No spoilers here, but it's basically about a future human society that lives underground and has suppressed all emotion and free will. Through the mandatory consumption of pharmaceuticals, a very dystopian tale. It's kind of like 2002's Equilibrium, but creepier and from the 70s. If you also haven't seen Equilibrium, you have a lot of catching up to do. Okay, back to Sinanon. As the decade wore on, treatments and rules at Sinanon became more bizarre and sinister. The game got more intense. The process could be brutal, breaking someone down completely, and they considered this to be therapeutic. Many ex-members actually recall liking the game and believing it really was beneficial. This may have made more sense in the context of the popular spiritual movements and New Age ideas of that time period, but eventually therapy couldn't even be used as pretense. Sessions were really used to browbeat and control. Another psychological phenomenon that might have led members to approve of the game is traumatic bonding. Any soldier can tell you about what the military dubs unit cohesion. Shared pain brings people together. On the flip side, abuse victims describe the powerful bond sometimes created by repeating cycles of punishment and reward. Another disturbing turn at Sinanon was when Diedrich remarried after his wife Betty died. In yet another instance of follow the leader, he decided the rest of the Sinanites should follow suit, and ordered married couples to divorce so they could remarry other people of his choosing. Hundreds of couples divorced. Diedrich chose new spouses who were married in mass ceremonies. Children at Sinanon were raised communally, a common practice among alternative or experimental communities. At first, this might sound like a big help to parents. The way it was carried out was cruel and abusive. Babies were taken from their parents at around six months of age and placed into a church school called the Hatchery. They had their heads shaved like the adults. And parents had very restricted access to their kids from that time on. The children themselves were intentionally raised to have no real sense of a mother or father. They might get a visit from a parent from time to time, but they were cared for on a daily basis by the community members who ran the school. Diedrich's concept was that Sinanon was creating a whole new kind of person. Not dependent on parents, self-reliant, and kept from the harm of overbearing mothers in particular. 
From Freud up until that time, psychologists had frequently ascribed many mental illnesses like schizophrenia or societal ills like crime on specific types of mothers. Those unscientific and unsubstantiated theories were eventually debunked, but remnants of that misogynistic philosophy are still around today in some measure. As you can imagine, the separation of children from parents became a very effective means of control for Diederich. Access to one's own children could easily be used as a tool of coercion. Over time, Diedrich grew less and less tolerant of the kids at Synanon. He felt that they were too expensive to take care of and seemingly just didn't like them generally. He proclaimed that there would be no more children at Synanon. A few women were already pregnant, and they were forced to have abortions if they wanted to stay. Men were pressured to get vasectomies. This is where the game gets really sinister. It was used as a ruthless method to pressure reluctant members into complying with the procedures. Sometimes men would be berated for hours in the guise of the game, finally relenting under severe pressure, and they'd be led straight from the game to a room where a doctor was waiting to perform the vasectomy. This would prove to be a significant pain point for Synanon, as Dietrich grew more and more hostile toward children, proposed moving them all to a separate facility and forced sterilization procedures and abortions on members, two or three hundred people are estimated to have left the church because of this final straw. Incredibly, many more stayed. Mikkel Jolet has a beautifully written memoir of surviving a childhood in Synanon called Hollywood Park. His mother took him and his brother out of Synanon when he was about four or five, and the earlier parts of the book describe the surrounding events and aftermath largely from the perspective of his childhood self, so it has more nuance and humanity than you might normally get from other sources on this subject. In one arresting scene, he describes witnessing, as a young child, a synonym attack on another defector who wound up in a coma with a cracked skull and barely survived. If you finish binging Failed Utopia and need something else to listen to, try the audiobook version of Hollywood Park. It's really quite striking and beautiful. The teens who were sent to the program for juvenile delinquency, dubbed the Punk Squad, didn't fare much better. The teens were routinely abused and some started running away, forming a small underground railroad. Punishment for running away or any other transgression was severe. Meanwhile, Dieterich was becoming more and more paranoid about threats from the outside. Paranoia seems to be a theme that emerges over time with cult leaders, and you have to wonder if it comes from some form of imposter syndrome. They know they're a fraud, and the idea of anyone from the outside getting a look is terrifying, because it will all inevitably come crumbling down. In fact, that's exactly what does happen. Synanon members driven by Diedrich's paranoia and ego engaged in campaigns of harassment, lawsuits, intimidation, 
and violence against critics, including the media who'd now moved from flattering to unflattering coverage of the group, defectors, lawyers, law enforcement, and many other perceived enemies. Dietrich assembled a Synanon militia, grandiosely called the Imperial Marines, and outfitted with some very Nazi-esque uniforms. They amassed hundreds of weapons and even developed their own martial art, dubbed Sindo. Over 80 violent incidents would be attributed to the Imperial Marines, but there's one in particular that really stands out. In 1977, a woman named Frances Wynne, who had a history of depression and psychotic episodes, wound up at Synanon. I've heard a couple of different accounts of how she got there, but there's nothing to indicate she knew what Synanon was or willingly tried to join. She believed she was going to a counseling appointment, but when the Synanites got a hold of her, her fate was sealed. They shaved her head, subjected her to a session of the game, and sent her on a bus to their Tamales Bay facility and told her this was her new home. When her frantic husband Ed finally tracked her down, he was told he couldn't see her for at least 90 days. He got no help from police, so he contacted a lawyer named Paul Moran. Morantz was a young lawyer who'd already made a name for himself busting a nursing home scam, where homeless people were scooped up from Skid Row and kept sedated in facilities that would then bill Medicare. Edwin hired Morantz, and they did eventually get Francis back. Morantz went on to win a $300,000 lawsuit against Synanon on behalf of the Wins. This outraged Charles Diedrich. In October of 1978, Paul Morantz opened his mailbox to be bitten by a rattlesnake. The four-foot snake's rattle had been removed to keep it quiet, and I can only imagine how mad that poor snake must have been by the time Morantz opened the mailbox. Morantz was able to summon help from neighbors who called an ambulance. Morantz barely survived the snake bite, thanks to quick and aggressive treatment with antivenom. The lawyer knew from the moment he was bitten that Synanon was to blame. He told police, but law enforcement had no proof to go on. One of the first things they did was have the snake examined by an expert. The particular scale pattern revealed that it was hundreds of miles outside its natural range. There was no way it just happened to slither into that mailbox. Before the attack, one of Morantz's neighbors took note of the license plate of a white van seen outside of Morantz's house. When police ran the plate, it was registered to Synanon. A police officer later spotted the van and pulled it over. 
The occupants were Joe Musico and Lance Kenton, both members of the Imperial Marines. They were arrested, but law enforcement didn't think they were criminal masterminds. They were both low-level members of Synanon, and it was widely known by this time that Diederich called the shots, and his devoted followers would do anything he said. Police and the L.A. County District Attorney wanted Diederich himself, but they just didn't have proof linking Diederich to the attack on Morantz. Musico and Kenton had lawyered up and weren't talking. Synanon defectors, split E's in Synanon lingo, revealed to the DA's office that one of the regular routines at Synanon was listening to long talks by Diederich over what they called The Wire, a radio transmission that was pumped into every Synanon facility through loudspeakers. Adoring acolytes would record and transcribe every word. One of these talks by Diederich included his thoughts on Paul Morantz. He explicitly stated that he wanted him dead. He also mentioned several other things he'd like to do to Morantz, including ripping off his arm and beating him with it. Law enforcement saw this as the key piece of evidence they needed to bring down Diederich for the attempted murder. They determined a copy of the tape, if such a tape truly did exist, could likely be found at a remote Tulare County Synanon facility. The operation to execute a search warrant included a SWAT team. They knew that the Imperial Marines were armed to the teeth and apparently willing to kill. Thankfully, law enforcement was able to conduct a peaceful search of the facility, and they did recover the tape they wanted. Armed with this new evidence, the DA's office finally had what they wanted to bring charges against Charles Diederich. Law enforcement learned that Diederich was staying at a Synanon property in Lake Havasu, Arizona, and went to arrest him. When they got there, Diederich was drunk, completely wasted, barely responsive, and speaking gibberish. That's right, the supposed guru of the sober life hadn't overcome his own alcoholism. He was carried out on a stretcher and flown to an L.A. jail, where he received actual medical treatment to detox. This turn of events is just dripping with irony, but it serves to underscore the fact that Dietrich never had any business running a rehab in the first place. As it turned out, Dietrich was a very ill man, and there was some question as to whether he was fit to stand trial. Ultimately, the prosecutor looked to Paul Morantz to decide what to do. Morantz believed that Diederich belonged in jail, but couldn't morally make a decision that would almost inevitably lead to a man's death. As things stood, it was very likely Diederich would soon die if sent to prison. With Morantz's blessing, Diederich was allowed to plead no contest to conspiracy to commit murder. In exchange, he received just five years' probation, either a five or $10,000 fine, according to different sources, and an order to never associate with Synanon again. Paul Morantz also asked the judge for a leniency in the case against Musico and Kenton, the men who'd carried out the rattlesnake attack. Morantz had learned what a cult can do to a person and believed the men were brainwashed doing anything they were told by Diederich. In the end, both men pleaded no contest and served only one year in jail, followed by three years of probation. 
Paul Morantz became known as the rattlesnake guy, but there's so much more to be said about his legacy. After helping bring down Synanon, he devoted the rest of his career to busting cults and representing their victims in court. He's written two books about his experiences, Escape, My Lifelong War Against Cults, and From Miracle to Madness, The True Story of Charles Diedrich and Synanon. He also paid another price for the attack that day, a debilitating, lifelong illness requiring frequent blood transfusions due to the snake venom. If anything, the vicious attack against him only made him more determined to expose Synanon for what they really were and to try to protect and get justice for other victims of cults. There's another book about Synanon I wanted to read called The Rise and Fall of Synanon, A California Utopia by Rod Jansen. I'd seen it described in a couple of other sources as being strangely sympathetic toward the cult. That piqued my interest, but sadly, I haven't been able to get my hands on the book. I don't know why it's so hard to find. It came out in 2001, but I guess it's out of print. As of this recording, there are two used copies available on Amazon for over $400. Obviously, I wasn't going to pay that for the book, but if you want to get me a gift, just send me the $400 and skip the book. But seriously, if anyone out there has a copy, I guess you can sell it for a bunch of money. I'd love to borrow it before you do, though. When I was looking for the book on Amazon, I noticed Paul Morantz himself left a one-star review of the book. It reads, I fought Synanon for over a decade and possessed the internal memos showing their conspiracy to commit violence. The evidence was offered to writer and publisher who turned it down to meet deadline. The book is highly inaccurate, didn't follow the evidence. Conclusions on brainwashing and violence embarrassingly understated. Only true history of Synanon is dot 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 end quote. I think the ellipsis at the end is where Amazon perhaps removed a link. I'd have to guess Morant probably tried to link to his own book or his website. Morant is extremely intolerant of any coverage of Synanon that isn't sufficiently condemning. It's understandable. They literally tried to kill him and almost succeeded. Going to Morantz's chaotic website led me down quite a rabbit hole, and he has an entire series of blogs devoted just to completely shredding Kentucky University professor Claire Clark and her 2017 book, The Recovery Revolution. The book isn't really even about Synanon per se, but about the evolution of addiction treatment in America. By Morantz's reading, she just wasn't hard enough on Synanon, and he sort of devolves into some awkward personal attacks on Clark. One thing that's clear is he's still very passionate about this subject. If you decide to check out his website, there is a wealth of information there, but with all due respect to the writer, it's in need of some editing, so I found I couldn't read too much. If you're interested in hearing Morantz's story in his own words, his books might be a better bet than the website. He's also done some interviews over the years, and of course, you can find those on YouTube. Well, 
I found these little controversies over how to ethically represent the cult very interesting. We have to ask ourselves where to draw the lines between a tyrannical leader, misguided or manipulated followers complicit in violent or harmful acts, and innocent people caught up in the chaos. How much nuance is acceptable when dissecting the ideals and actions that preceded insanity? Synanon and many other notorious cults did start out with some laudable goals. That's what attracts their followers in the first place. And all of these groups have ex-members who will say they loved being a part of it and that they miss or mourn for the real or imagined utopia that existed before things went wrong. Is it okay to talk about the very real and lasting impact that Synanon and Charles Diedrich had on addiction treatment in America without giving equal attention to the horrors and violence that came later? Would we be oversimplifying or dismissing by blanket labeling adherents as brainwashed? One thing that's clear is that there's a great deal of complexity in picking apart the motivations and experiences of all those involved. Every Synanon member came to the table with a unique and rich life story with something to gain, but also everything to lose. After Charles Diedrich's arrest, Synanon pretty much fell apart. It couldn't function without its messiah. In 1982, the IRS revoked Synanon's tax-exempt status, ordering them to pay $17 million in back taxes, effectively bankrupting the organization. Hundreds of documents provided by Paul Morantz provided much of the basis for those proceedings. It formally dissolved in 1991, though I've heard there's still a Synanon branch in Germany which operates as a rehab. Charles Diedrich died in 1997 at 83 years of age. In a way, it's disappointing that it didn't all fall apart until near the end of his life. It doesn't seem that his punishment was proportional to the pain and suffering he caused. The sober utopia he sold to hopeful followers turned out to be one more con perpetrated by a charismatic egomaniac. That brings us to the end of this episode. If you want to learn more about Synanon, check out the links and resources in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts to help other people find it. Tell your friends about it, and if you want to support the pod directly and help keep new episodes coming, you can donate to the show through the link in the show notes. Connect and stay in the loop on the website, failedutopia.com, or the Facebook page at failedutopiapod. Failed Utopia episodes are written and produced by me, Anna Roberts. The burning palm tree painting featured on the cover is by artist Perry Vasquez. My intro music is by Elliot Middleton. See you next time.